This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, Whistle Stop fans. This is Jocelyn, the producer of the pod. I'd like to welcome you to this special encore presentation of Whistle Stop. The episode you're about to hear originally came to your ears about one year ago. As you look back on this date last year, enjoy this look back even further. Take it away, John. Hello, and welcome to Whistle Stop, formerly a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities, and now an inquiry into the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. In November of 2016, President-elect Donald Trump orchestrated the retention of 800 or so jobs at the carrier plant in Indiana. Trump said he would save 1,100 jobs, but that wasn't the real number. This fact was pointed out by Chuck Jones, the leader of Steelworkers Local 1999. In response to this, Donald Trump took on the labor leader in two tweets that read, Talking. Reduce dues. Imagine a hothead president punching down like that, taking on labor leaders. Not exactly a fair fight bringing the full power of the Trump train down upon the head of a single man. This reminded me of another intemperate moment in history when Harry Truman went even further using the full power of the presidency, the emotional weaponry of post-war patriotism, and language even hotter than President-elect Trump, who may be a norm buster, but who will have to act more outrageously if he's going to top Harry S. Truman's battle with the railroad and mining union bosses in 1946. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our whistle stop today is the 24th of May, 1946, and President Harry Truman asks his press secretary, Charles G. Ross, to clear all the networks for a coast-to-coast fireside chat that evening about his dispute with the railroad labor leaders. And he hands his press secretary a dozen-page holograph on ruled tablet paper, the kind of tablet paper kids use in school. 
Here's what I'm going to say, the president said to his friend, Ross, who had graduated in the same year from Independence High School in Missouri. That was the same year, by the way, that Best Truman graduated. Get it typed up, said Truman. I'm going to take the hide right off those sons of bitches. Back in his close office, Ross, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner and the first professor of journalism at the University of Missouri, was flabbergasted by what he was reading. Quote, it was surely one of the most intemperate documents ever written by a president, wrote Clark Clifford in his autobiography, Clifford, a close Truman aide, who comes into Truman's confidence really in this moment where in this story we're about to tell. So if we were doing Whistle Stop, the podcast of moments that lead to the ascension of Washington wise men, this would be a crucial moment for Clifford, who you may also remember was in that meeting of Truman advisors before the 48 election and, and was the was one of the authors of or architects of the Whistle Stop tour. William Manchester in The Glory and the Dream called the uh, letter by Truman one of the most splenetic outbursts ever set down in the White House. Truman's chicken scratch outlined a national address in which he would tell the country that while America's young men had, quote, faced bullets, bombs, and disease to win the victory, the leaders of the coal and railroad unions had as much as, quote, fired bullets in the backs of our soldiers by holding, quote, a gun to the head of the government. They were all liars, Truman said, and he singled out John L. Lewis and his communist friends for intimidating a weak-kneed Congress. But next came the real topper, the red-hot popper. Here's Truman. Every single one of the strikers and their demagogic leaders have been living in luxury, working when they pleased and drawing from four to 40 times the pay of a fighting soldier. Let's give the country back to the people. Let's put transportation and production back to work. Hang a few traitors and make our own country safe for democracy. Come on, boys. Let's do the job. Did you catch it in there? Did you catch the humdinger? Well, of course you did. The wages of the average union leader was not four to 40 times that of the fighting soldier. Well, that's true, but that was not the humdinger. The humdinger was hang a few traitors. The president of the United States was pressing down into that child's tablet with all of his energy, preparing remarks to make a speech to the nation, which this former haberdasher who had sold neckties was encouraging people to throw necktie parties for labor leaders to hang them. The presidency is often conceived as an action hero office. The authors of The Federalist did understand it to be a source of energy, as they wrote, in the government. That, but that's sometimes gotten out of whack. Now, when there's a problem, particularly in the economy, the president is expected to leap from his desk, crash into the Rose Garden with a solution. You'll remember Martin Van Buren in the election of 1840 was penalized for not acting to ameliorate the effects of the Panic of 1837. He thought it was not the government's job to interfere. Well, it might not have been, but for the fact that people blamed the government for interfering in the first place. So if it was going to knock things over and create the Panic of 1837, then maybe it should set things straight again. Donald Trump with Carrier is the example of the flashy action president. Well, he's not even president yet, but he's zooming off to Indiana to take credit for negotiating with the company in order to save the jobs. And so he is going for the action hero version of the presidency. The problem, of course, with that, and we'll return to this again and again in in our conversations, is there's a tension in the presidency between action and the constraints of the office. Sometimes the constraints are normative, 
essentially the standards that have been handed down to a president. Some of the constraints are ideological. In other words, conservatives aren't supposed to go in for government meddling. And then some of the constraints, of course, are legal. Laws in the Constitution confine a president to doing what he's supposed to do. I might also note in Trump's case, there's another downside to being the action hero president. It sets expectations for your other actions. So when you don't act heroically on some other front, uh, you fail by the comparison of the presidency as you say it should be enacted or performed. So when you're bursting with energy on one front, but blasé about another, you tend to send a greater signal through that inaction than you may have meant to. Because presidential restraint is a virtue. You want to be restrained in some instances, but if you've defined the presidency as an office where action is central to the task, then you're constraining yourself by making restraint look weak. In this episode, looking at Harry Truman and labor, we will take a look at emergency action that he took, the man from Missouri, in cases where it worked to create prestige for him. We may also, in a future whistle stop, address the situation in which his action hero presidential actions with respect to labor did not create prestige for him. But before we get to prestige, let's uh, step back and take a look at old Harry S. Truman. When he got embroiled in the imbroglios we're going to talk about here with the railroads and the union and the mining unions, he'd only been in office for a year. After FDR's death, it was assumed that he, Truman, would ride out the man's fourth term, and then the understudy would go back off Broadway and to his dinner theaters back in Missouri. But uh, in part because FDR had told him almost nothing about the job being president because he didn't assume he was going to be leaving it. So in that sense, Truman may have been the least prepared understudy for the job because now even people who are elected with no government experience get a bunch of briefings before they actually take the job. Time magazine wrote at the time with almost complete unanimity, Truman's friends agreed last week that he would not be a great president. They wrote that early, obviously, in Truman's tenure. FDR had been magisterial. Truman was a little normal man, an ordinary fellow, plain spoken and not polished. He used that to great effect to get reelected in 1948, as we all have discussed previously. But in the early days of his presidency, his modest nature was often used to lampoon him. To err is Truman was, of course, a famous quote. In, in those early days, Truman wrote home letters that testify to his nervousness. I have had a most strenuous time for the last six days. I was sworn in at 7.09 p.m. Eastern Time, April 12th, and it is now 9 p.m. April 18th. Six days, President of the United States. It's hardly believable. This day has been a dinger, too. I'm about to go to bed, but I thought I'd better write you a note. Soon as we get settled in the White House, you'll both be here to visit us. Lots of love from your very much-worried son and bro. On August 6, 1945, of course, Truman dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so his fears about being too small for the job had not kept him from making one of the most consequential presidential decisions ever. So what we knew about Truman going into this period in 1946 was that he could make a bold decision, but he was also still not a natural image fit for the job that had been created by his predecessor. So what we're going to look at today are the domestic decisions. Commander-in-chief has unilateral power to make big military decisions, like the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but it's stickier when it comes to domestic affairs. It's harder to, to take action. So what did it look like when the man who made the weightiest single national security decision perhaps in American history turned his action style to the domestic arena? 
Well, so what's going on in the in domestic arena? We were after the war here, and the federal tinkering with the economy was the norm. There was something called the Office of Price Administration, and that had been created during the war to cap prices on everything except agricultural commodities and to ration scarce supplies of other items, including things like tires and shoes and nylon and sugar and automobiles, gasoline, coffee. At the peak, almost 90% of retail food prices were frozen. My, my point here is, the government is engaged in the careful tweaking of the dials in the economy during the war. And then coming out of the war, there's a big debate about the role of the federal government. And Republicans were trying to get rid of the price fixing to allow the free market to do its thing, to allow supply and demand to kind of even out better. There was a lot of black market purchasing. And also it was felt that business should be allowed to flourish. So while the country is trying to come and, and reach an equilibrium on prices of goods, of course, labor was trying to do the same thing. During the war, worker demands for better conditions and higher wages had been deferred in most cases. With victory, the, de the, the demands exploded. Truman wanted to keep caps on prices and caps on wages, but labor, they'd done their thing for the country, and now they wanted to be able to get better wages. And when accommodations could not be made, there were strikes, lots of them. During the first full year after the war, nearly 5 million men struck at one time or another, and 107,476,000 man days of work were lost to strikes. In September of 1945, Ford workers struck, then GM in 1946, and then industries one by one, oil, lumber, textile, and electrical industries all saw strikes. There was essentially, because of all the massive strikes in so many different industries, it was basically referred to as a workers' revolt or rebellion. Western Electric employees swell the growing total of striking workers throughout the country. Thousands of New York telegraph workers also walk out and picket Western Union buildings, crippling telegraphic communications. Less than 15% of messages are being handled in the New York area. Although the strike was conducted in an orderly manner, police occasionally have to use persuasion to pass an unaffected employee through the picket line. Picketers battled police before the Chicago stockyards, overturned and burned cars of the white-collar workers trying to get into their offices at the General Motors plant in Detroit. They hurled stones through the windows of an electrical plant in St. Louis. Imagine all of this, then, in the context of an economy where you've got a president and Congress trying to manage those careful dials. You know, you're, you're over there trying to get the dial just right, and a guy walks in with a huge brick and throws it at your head. On the 31st of March, 1946, 400,000 coal miners went on strike. Then in May, two stubborn railroad union executives defied Truman. And this is the bulk of our conversation today. Why do coal and railroads matter more than all the rest? Well, coal was providing 95% of the fuel to locomotives, 55% of the industrial energy, and 62% of all electrical power. When the coal uh, coal miners struck, wartime dimouts were reinstated in 22 states. Steel and car production essentially came to a halt. As for the railroads, they were crucial to American business, hauling freight and also for consumers. We didn't have lots of plane travel and interstate driving was difficult. So basically imagine shutting down the internet, and that's a little bit what it was like to lose coal and the railroads. Truman liked to think of himself after having dropped the bomb as a man of peace, he would show visitors to the White House the tiny plow which had replaced his model gun on his desk. It's the little things that count, he would say. I like the feeling of having the new little fellow there, talking about the plow. Time magazine described Truman 
at this point on his 62nd birthday in this very happy way. Essentially, I'm preparing you for the fall. Here's how Time Magazine talked about him. Harry Truman floated atop successive waves of crisis like a bold bather, frolicking in the breakers. Troubled waters mounted mightily, surged thunderously in his direction, broke magnificently over the president's head. From the foamy surf, Harry Truman bobbed up every time, splashing and spouting lightheartedly. In the week of his 62nd birthday, apparently nothing could shake him. He pitched horseshoes to whet his appetite for a birthday luncheon party in the office of Attorney General Tom Clark. The party was gay. Even the six Supreme Court justices present guffawed when the finically dressed president put on a roguish Texas sombrero. Carefree as a boy, Harry Truman sliced a toothsome birthday cake with three flickering candles. One for the past, one for the present, and one for the future. Well, it was the future candle the natty national leader should have had his eye on. It was the one about to inflame as labor would throw horseshoes at his head. Sorry, that last little bit was me in the voice of 1946 Time magazine. All, all Truman actually had to do is read that copy of Time magazine and look at who was on the cover. Labor leader John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers, who would give Truman a real headache later in the year. But first, before we get to Lewis, he had other railroad toughs to deal with. And Time magazine may have overstated the placidity of Truman's behavior. And here we're going to break into the theme of public versus private Harry Truman. And also, obviously, we'll think about this with all presidents, how they behaved in private, what they were thinking in private, and what, how they behaved in public. Here's how David McCullough describes Truman privately. Inwardly, Truman was an extremely frustrated, resentful, and angry man, worn thin by criticism, fed up with crises not of his making, and with people who, as he saw it, cared nothing for their country, only their own selfish interests. Quote, big money has too much power, and so have the big unions. Both are riding to a fall because I like neither, Truman had written to his mother earlier. And the mood since had only worsened. So he wasn't so chipper, chip, chipper as Time Magazine made him seem. On April 18th of 1946, miners were on strike, and at that point, the railroad's two key brotherhoods announced that they would withdraw all of their men within 30 days. The Truman administration had actually been working on a deal with the 20 railroad unions to continue negotiations over wages. Basically, the 20 railroad unions were demanding $2.20 a day wage increase, and the administration and management was offering a buck twenty-eight a day wage increase. But 18 of the 20 railroads said, okay, we'll keep bickering. But that wasn't good enough for the bespeckled Alvany Johnson of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, or the BLE, and the Fedora Fond A.F. Whitney, the brother of the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen. To describe both Johnson and Whitney as paunchy would be accurate. The nation's transportation grid would stop functioning if this strike actually happened, and the leaders... Those two leaders had the entire nation's transportation grid in their hands. So in other words, 18 of the 20 railroad unions might have been on board, but if these two struck, that was it. And the thing about these two was they were Truman allies. They'd boosted his Senate career and they put him up for the vice presidential spot. And so when Truman called the two of them into the White House, he expected them to accept. They said no. So they kept bickering and bickering and bickering, and then on May 15th, three days before the strike deadline, Truman called in the 20 union leaders of the, of the railroad unions to the White House, and still, only Whitney and Johnson were refusing the offer of 128 
they wanted the $2.20 a day increase. If you think I'm going to sit here and let you tie up this whole country, Truman said, you're crazy as hell. We've got to go through with it, Mr. President. Either Johnson or Whitney replied, history doesn't record which of it was, our men are demanding it. Truman's aide, Clark Clifford, who was not in the meeting, described Truman as furious. I think he felt that they were really awfully arrogant, and this is what really got his goat. Truman rose and said to the two men, all right, I'm going to give you the gun. You've got just 48 hours until Friday at this time to reach a settlement. If you don't, I'm going to take over the railroads in the name of the government. This was an extraordinary gambit. The two men, Whitney and Johnson, could bring the entire wheels of the country to a halt. And when the deadline came and went, Truman called Johnson and Whitney to the White House and in their presence, and with the news cameras there to capture it, he signed an executive order seizing the railroads in the event of a strike. Negotiations continued, but still, after that big moment, they replied to Truman, your offer is unacceptable. This is how Cabell Phillips of the New York Times characterized Truman's reaction in response to the labor leaders. When Harry Truman's mad is up, his eyes glint coldly behind his spectacles. His mouth is thin, hard line pulled down at the corners, and his carriage has the bitterness of a bamboo reed. This was the image, as one remembers it, as he stalked into a specially called meeting of his cabinet that Friday morning. In the manner of Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, he had summoned them not to solicit their views, but to tell them what he was going to do. He was going to Congress in person the next day and demand the stiffest labor law in history, one that would give him authority to draft strikers into the armed services without respect to age or dependency when their strike threatened to bring on a national emergency. When Attorney General Tom C. Clark, you may remember he threw the birthday party for him, raised a question about the constitutionality of such a move, the president brushed him aside peremptorily. We'll draft them first and think about the law later, Truman said. Here's how Harry Vaughn, Truman's military aide, put it. He's one tough son of a bitch. It was at this point that Truman handed the 12 pages of his speech to his press secretary. It was just rough as cob, remembers Clark Clifford. He just let go. It was like writing a letter to somebody in which you just pour out all that you feel, and when you finish, you feel a lot better. Then you tear it up and put it in the wastebasket. Truman called these emotional outbursts Longhand spasms. He may have been even more angry in this particular spasm because at one point one of the labor leaders said to one of Truman's negotiators that they could easily say no to the president because no one really paid attention to the president anyway. Here is what Truman was prepared to say about those labor leaders in that speech that he never ended up giving but that represented that late night spasm. Here's a little Harry. At home, those of us who had the country's welfare at heart worked day and night, but some people worked neither day nor night, and some tried to sabotage the war effort entirely. No one knows that better than I. John Lewis called two strikes in wartime to satisfy his ego. Two strikes which were worse than bullets in the back of our soldiers. He held a gun at the head of the government. The rail unions did exactly the same thing. They all were receiving from four to forty times what the man who was facing the enemy fire on the front was receiving. The effete union leaders received from five to ten times the net salary of your president. Both of those facts were totally wrong. Now these same union leaders on VJ Day told your president that they would cooperate 100% with him to reconvert to peacetime production. They all 
lied to him. First came the threatened automobile strike. Your president asked for legislation to cool off and consider the situation. A weak need Congress didn't have the intestinal fortitude to pass the bill. Mr. Murray and his communist friends had a conniption fit, and Congress had labor jitters. Nothing happened. Then came the electrical workers' strike, the steel strike, the coal strike, and now the rail tie-up. Every single one of the strikers and their demagogic leaders have been living in luxury, working when they pleased. I am tired of the government being flouted, vilified, and misrepresented. Now I want you men who are my comrades in arms, you men who fought the battles to save the nation just as I did 25 years ago, to come along with me and eliminate Lewis's and the Whitney's and the Johnson's and the communist brigades and the Russian senators and representatives, and really make this a government of, by, and for the people. I think no more of the Wall Street crowd than I do of Lewis and Whitney. Let us give the country back to the people. Let's put transportation and production back to work, hang a few traitors, make our own country safe for democracy, tell the Russians where to get off, and make the United Nations work. Come on, boys, let's do the job. Well, I'll be. So... That's what he was going to say, <laughs> but the original speech, that speech was never given. It's only, it's basically just a big bunch of bile and it was all full of errors and it sits in a box in the Truman Library, never having been given. And this is the difference between a president who tweets without a filter or a president who has a Twitter account he can sign on to and a president whose aides know how to let him blow off steam that doesn't really hurt his office. So that people don't think he's plunging the country into the cold with no coal and uh, plunging the country into chaos with no railroads out of sheer spleen. It was an emerging picture of Truman, the private person, and, and Truman, the public executive. So if we talk about two Trumps. There were two Trumans. The question was, which was the real temperament? Which was the effective temperament in the end of the day? And here's uh, we return again to McCullough uh, and his great biography on Truman full of character and good stuff. White House reporter who made, uh, who covered Truman, Felix uh, Belair, asked Truman's physician, Colonel Graham, if perhaps the president wasn't working too hard. And Graham agreed, adding that the emphasis that there was also nothing he could do about it. That's the way he is, Graham said. I try using a little applied psychology, but you know the president has a pretty good psychology of his own. He does the best he can by his job, and he knows there's no worrying about it after that. So that little quote suggests a, a pretty good temperament for Truman, but man, that temperament was not, it's not working when he was pressing the old number two into the, uh, in those ruled pages of the tablet. So now here's an interesting argument that Clifford makes about why they tore up that speech and more to the point why it's kind of a crucial thing that you need in a White House with a president who's, who's prone to those fits of excitement. Here's Clifford talking about Ross, who is um, Charlie Ross, who is uh, the press secretary, who was handed the 12-page speech. Ross could speak to the president like no one else. He had told him that this message would backfire. The president, feeling better after having let off some steam, recognized that Ross was right and told Charlie to ask me to draft the message more moderate in tone, but still tough enough to make the point. At the time, the president's original handwritten message struck me as perilously out of control. I thought he had been saved from disaster only by the wise and firm intervention of Charlie Ross. So there you have, you know, crazy Truman uh, saved by his aide from saying something intemperate in the moment. Clifford again. Later, when I came to know the president better, I discovered it was not unusual for him to work off some of his frustration by putting his innermost thoughts on paper. 
We all have moments when we allow the deeper recesses of our minds to entertain delicious but private thoughts about the vicious things we would like to do to our adversaries. Harry Truman had the habit of writing some of these private thoughts down. Some were shared with no one, others shown only a few to a few intimates. If he had not been president, they would have had little importance. He expected his trusted inner staff to prevent him from going public with his fury. So this is interesting, okay? Now it's not just that Truman is a, um, a bull and his aides are diving in front of the China. It's the Truman knows what he's doing and he knows he has aides there to pad up all the China in bubble wrap so that he can have a good romp around and let off his steam. Now, this was not always the case. There was one time when Truman's team hadn't jumped in the way to save the day, and that was when Truman wrote to the Washington Post critic who had unfavorably reviewed his daughter. This is on December 6, 1950, so this is four years after the period in which we're talking now, but Truman read a letter, a review of his daughter Margaret Truman's singing performance, and he was furious. The critic, Paul Hume, said that while Mrs. Truman was extremely attractive, uh, he stated bluntly that Mrs. Uh, Truman cannot sing very well uh, and has not improved over the years. The president wrote to the 34-year-old Hume a very peppery and famous letter that was not ripped from his hands by his uh, loyal servants. Mr. Hume, I have just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. I've come to the conclusion that you are an eight-ulcer man on four-ulcer pay. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who wishes he could have been successful. When you write such poppycock as was in the back section of the paper you work for, it shows conclusively that you're off the beam, and at least four of your ulcers are at work. Someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. That's just outstanding. So when you think of Donald Trump taking on a union leader, throwing the full weight of his uh, power at that guy, well, here you had Harry Truman going after a uh, a critic. So, and, and Truman was the actual president. So that asymmetric warfare has happened before. The speech that uh, Truman didn't give didn't mean that he wasn't going to talk, of course. And so he, because of course, what, what, What's going on before he speaks to the nation is there's a massive railroad national crisis going on. The strike is on. Frantic travelers jam the stations of the nation as the long-awaited railroad strike enters its first hours and tickets are no longer to be had. Weeks of negotiation prove fruitless, cutting off shipments of vital supplies and leaving thousands stranded in every part of the country. Twenty-four hundred freight trains were normally in operation. Now only three hundred were. Rush hour commuters were stranded. Coast to coast streamliners stopped and put their passengers out in the middle of the desert. A Chicago woman was kept from her father's deathbed. Sick kids didn't make it to the doctor. Baseball teams, the circus, and other entertainers didn't make it to town. Hotels had to set up cots to house the stranded. And here are the telegrams that started to flood in. Hatcheries in Henry County, Missouri, now producing millions of chicks weekly, which are a total, at a total loss unless shipped immediately by rail when hatched. Mr. President, zero hour is here. Who is to rule our nation, the legally constituted authorities or isolated domestic groups? Please forget selfish politics long enough to remember that other people besides labor leaders have to live and eat. They also vote. 
Is the present incumbent impotent in the railroad strike? If so, he should resign. Why don't you go ahead and act in this national crisis? You're our leader. Prompt action is the only thing that can save our country. Less talk and more action. Quit playing politics. Time to get tough. Respectfully urge you to rise to the occasion. Okay, calling for the action president. So, Truman doesn't give the peppery speech, but what he does say is plenty hot already. On May 24th, he takes to the radio, and while negotiations are still going on, Truman meets with World War II veterans who are convalescing, and according to McCullough, the contrast between their selfless sacrifice and service, which he sees firsthand in their visit to the White House, and the labor leaders' pinched-up stinginess, which was playing out in the rooms of the negotiating rooms in the White House, there was a strong juxtaposition between those two, and you could still hear that in Truman's speech that he ultimately gave on radio. Good evening from the White House in Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow countrymen, I come before the American people tonight at a time of great crisis. The crisis of Pearl Harbor was the result of the action by a foreign enemy. The crisis tonight is caused by a group of men within our own country who place their private interests above the welfare of the nation. As Americans, we have the right to look to the president for leadership in this grave emergency. I have accepted the responsibility as I have accepted it in other emergencies. Every citizen of this country has the right to know what has brought about this crisis. The day after talking on the radio, Truman spoke to Congress, and it was there that he unveiled his plan to take the union workers who were striking and put them in the Army. As I stated last night, unless the railroads are manned by returning strikers, I shall immediately undertake to run them by the Army of the United States. He continued, This is no longer a dispute between labor and management. It has now become a strike against the government of the United States itself. That kind of strike can never be tolerated. Labor leaders reacted furiously. The National Secretary of the CIO Political Action Committee took down the photograph of the president and himself from the wall in his office and dropped it into the wastebasket. Labor, he announced, is through with Truman. Whitney said he would spend every penny of the $47 million in his brotherhood's treasury to defeat the president in 1948. In a mean shot at Truman's background, he added, you can't make a president out of a ribbon clerk. After the big radio address, Truman then goes to the Congress on the 25th of May, and it was there you had a lot of drama backstage. Clark Clifford was in Speaker Sam Rayburn's office, keeping track of the negotiations that were still going on between... The White House negotiator, John Steelman, who was a stout, gregarious, gum-chewing former economics professor, and the two recalcitrant uh, railroad labor leaders who were dragging their feet still. So Truman's just out talking to Congress, giving the official speech, and as just as he gets to the exciting uh, part, here's, the best, here's, the, here's where he calls for drafting the strikers and putting them in the Army. Here's Truman. As a part of this temporary emergency legislation, I request the Congress immediately to authorize the President to draft into the armed forces of the United States all workers who are on strike against their government. But then drama. At that moment, an aide rushes up to Truman, speaking in the chamber, and hands him a red slip of paper. It's a note from Clifford. He glances at it and looks up. Word has just been received 
that the rail strike has been settled on terms proposed by the president. It was like something out of a movie. Whole Congress gets up and, and applauds. The red note is in Truman's hand, and the surprise moment was such a dramatic moment. Some people thought that the entire scene had been concocted for effect, which Clifford swears was not the case. McCullough says it had it wasn't, but Truman just continued on uh, in giving his speech to these great applause. Now, though he was getting big applause at having succeeded in breaking the strike, um, Republicans did not like the overall idea because the threat to drafting striking workers was incredibly dangerous because it would set a precedent that the president could punish anyone who didn't agree with him on any issue. And that would stifle private action, protests, debate, you know, basically rounding people up who were exercising their constitutional rights. In the House, they whipped the legislation through. Even though the strike's over, they, they, the legislation continued succeeded in the House, but in the Senate, it hit a roadblock. Claude Pepper, the Florida Democrat, said he would abandon his his uh, post rather than vote for such a bill. And Robert Taft, who we remember from the presidential campaign of 1952 and your early uh, whistle stop, who was recorded by the unions as their most powerful foe, he said that uh, Truman's demand, quote, offends not only the Constitution, but every basic principle for which the American Republic was established. Strikes cannot be prohibited without interfering with the basic freedom essential to our form of government. The idea was basically shot down uh, by the Senate. But that didn't matter because Truman had won a big victory and the railroad wheels were going to start a turning. So then we switch to our next big labor fight, which is with John Lewis, who declared Truman as the number one strike, the country's number one strike breaker and said, you can't mine coal with bayonets. John Lewis is the the president of the United Mine Workers Union. What he did was, in November, he reneged on that May agreement where he had said that 400,000 mine workers would not strike again. So Lewis was really quite a figure, and we need to stop for a moment, because he was really a figure you could go to war with. He was this outsized, barrel-chested, by the way, in describing labor leaders of the 1946 era, barrel-chested is a word you really want to use a lot, but I saved it for Lewis because it really fit him, and also because the railroad labor leader Johnson wasn't so much barrel-chested as barrel-bellied. Lewis, though, was six foot three inches. He was a Goliath of a, of a fellow who, whose resting face was a scowl. It was like a catcher's mitt with a lot of padding, and his eyebrows were so bushy and appeared so unreal, it was like someone had taken the vaudeville mustache and just pasted it on too high up on the head. If you remember Andy Rooney, imagine Andy Rooney and having a really boozier older brother. In addition to all of that that was going on with his face, he also um, loved to relax by reading Shakespeare, the Bible, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, which meant when he talked, he had um, a kind of theatricality that we previously I would have associated with Everett Dirksen, who we enjoyed uh, hearing from in the 1952 episode. But from basically 1920 to 1960, Lewis was revered and despised as the, the symbol and an author of militant unionism. That's why he was on the cover of Time magazine, which we talked about earlier in our our chat. So at this point, Truman is now having beaten the railroad Guys, he's now in a fight with the union, and 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 Truman's advisor Clifford thought that if Truman had, if he capitulated to Lewis, it would be his ruin, and and his presidency would be over. If he fought him, however, he might regain prestige, and that would help him get reelected in 1948. 
Oh, God, said Clifford, it was a chance of a lifetime. Be right, be strong, nobody's bigger than the President of the United States. The big difference between the railroad strike and the mining strike is that Truman had faced the, at, at the end of 1946 is that he'd already gotten trounced in the election of 1946. Democrats took a pounding, losing the House and the Senate, and Truman was at a low ebb. But Clifford insisted. Lewis's behavior constituted a direct threat to the president's political survival, he wrote. If he yielded to Lewis, he would have a hell of a time getting reelected, or sorry, after running out FDR's unfinished term and getting elected in 1948. Others in the White House uh, argued conciliation, including John Steelman, who had helped close that railroad deal. Clifford held firm, and then Truman basically went with Clifford, which infuriated Steelman. And there's apparently some late night meeting with all of them at the White House, all of them in black tie, having come from some dinner where they all yelled at each other and every, and maybe some of them were drunk. In any event, at the end of this, Truman filed a civil suit against Lewis. It would be a fight to the finish with John Lewis, said Truman. Then Truman did something unspeakable. He went on vacation to Key West. And while he was there, he climbed aboard a German submarine and went down 440 feet. Now, today, no president would be allowed to leave Washington to go on vacation during this kind of a crisis where where energy was being was going to run out because of a coal strike. I mean, he wouldn't be allowed like 10 feet from the White House, and he certainly wouldn't be allowed to go on a joyride in a captured German submarine. But the suit worked. Lewis thumbed his nose at the court at first, but then a federal judge cited him for contempt and fined the United Mine Workers $3.5 million and then fined another $10,000 fine to Lewis. So he was in a pickle. He didn't have the cash, and so he called the president to try and work something out. Truman didn't take the call. Lewis called again. Truman didn't take the call. It was a heck of a gambit that lasted for several days. The country was basically running out of fuel, and Truman was making Lewis sweat. Sorry, if I had more time, I would have swerved around that cliche, but there we go. It's cold, but he's sweating. Truman even leaked word that when he was coming back to Washington, he would compare the disaster Lewis had created by striking with soft coal workers to the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, uh, because the the five-year anniversary was coming up for Pearl Harbor. And basically, Truman won the gamble. With the presidential prestige at risk, he nevertheless got Lewis to back down. Lewis declared, all mines in all districts will resume production of coal immediately. Each member is directed to return to work immediately under the wages and conditions of employment on or before November 1946. This victory over Lewis did what, what Clifford had hoped it would do. It elevated Truman's stature. The papers started to see Truman first in a stronger light after the railroad deal, when papers talked about Truman's, quote, bold action. He had grown in national stature, wrote the Atlanta Constitution. He had, quote, met magnificently one of the greatest tests of courage ever to face an American president, declared the Philadelphia record. Harry Truman, wrote Felix Belair of the New York Times, had shown, quote, he could be tough, plenty tough when the occasion demanded. He was no less, quote, the average guy, quote, on the streetcar or driving with the family on Sunday, such as he had always been pictured. But just now he was also a man who could rise to the occasion. Rise to the occasion, you'll remember that, was a, was one of the things that people exhorted him to do in those telegrams that were sent to the White House. Although his effort to put the striking railroad workers in the Army had failed in the Senate, where Taft and others had scuttled it, the Lewis fight regained his, you know, I mean, first of all, the legislation dying in Congress didn't overcome the victory of getting the railroad wheels moving again. And when he beat down Lewis, the columnist gave him even more praise. The president has greatly regained stature as a national leader, wrote Arthur Crock. 
The Alsop brothers, Joseph and Stuart Alsop, called it, quote, the first break he has had in considerably more than a year. So Truman had made the gamble in these two fights with union leaders. What was at stake was a recovering country and its economy. What was at stake was the wheels of both private enterprise, which he and Congress and business was trying so desperately to keep going and not break in the wake of the war when everybody thought that there was going to be a depression following the following the war and the and as, as the country tried to get back to a normalcy. He'd done all he'd, he'd taken on all of that risk by going toe to toe with labor leaders and then by taking actions that even members of his own party thought were dictatorial and insane in order to back down the labor leaders from uh, their demands, which he thought were too much. He, uh, he incurred the wrath of those labor leaders, his crucial and important constituency in the coming 1948 election, uh, in order to do it. So he took an enormous political risk. And in both cases, it paid off. In fact, the 19, the $47 million that was going to be, or that was pledged to be spent against him ended up never being spent against him. And as you know from having listened multiple times to the 1948 whistle stop about that train tour, labor in the end came out hard for Truman. Members drove people to the polls, worked the ground such as you did in those days uh, on his behalf. He took a political risk that ended up not hurting him at all and was able to, through action on the domestic sphere where it's tougher and you're more constrained than and then in foreign affairs, he built capital and built prestige in 1946. It would not always be that way for Truman when he particularly took on labor leaders. And we will uh, have another edition of Whistle Stop in which we will uh, talk about the opposite case for the action hero Truman presidency. But for the moment, it made the president feel like a president perhaps for the first time. I can tell you there was a big difference in the old man from then on, Clark Clifford said after defeating Lewis. He was his own boss at last. Another presidential aide put it more succinctly. When Harry walked back to the mansion, he said, you could hear his balls clank. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. She keeps the trains running without shooting the engineer. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who turned the crank on the hand generator at Whistle Stop headquarters during our last coal strike. For Whistle Stop, I'll be back in two weeks with another edition. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. <laughs>